Speech by Stanley Baldwin. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For further information, or to volunteer, please go to LibriVox.org. Reading by Andy Minter. Speech given to the House of Commons on 10th of December, 1936, by the Prime Minister, Stanley Baldwin. The Prime Minister, Mr. Baldwin, at the bar, acquainted the House that he had a message from His Majesty the King to this House, signed by His Majesty's own hand, and he presented the same to the House, and it was read out by Mr. Speaker as followeth, all the members of the House being uncovered. Fort Belvedere, Sunningdale, Berkshire. After long and anxious consideration, I have determined to renounce the throne to which I succeeded on the death of my father, and I am now communicating this, my final and irrevocable decision. Realising as I do the gravity of this step, I can only hope that I shall have the understanding of my peoples in the decision I have taken, and the reasons which have led me to take it. I will not enter now into my private feelings, but I would beg that it should be remembered that the burden which constantly rests upon the shoulders of a sovereign is so heavy that it can only be borne in circumstances different from those in which I now find myself. I conceive that I am not overlooking the duty that rests on me to place in the forefront the public interest, when I declare that I am conscious that I can no longer discharge this heavy task with efficiency or with satisfaction to myself. I have accordingly this morning executed an instrument of abdication in the terms following. I, Edward the Eighth of Great Britain, Ireland, and the British dominions beyond the seas, King, Emperor of India, do hereby declare my irrevocable determination to renounce the throne for myself and for my descendants, and my desire that effect should be given to this instrument of abdication immediately. In token whereof, I have hereunto set my hand this tenth day of December, 1936, in the presence of the witnesses whose signatures are subscribed. Signed, Edward R. I. My execution of this instrument has been witnessed by my three brothers, their Royal Highnesses the Duke of York, the Duke of Gloucester, and the Duke of Kent, I deeply appreciate the spirit which has actuated the appeals which have been made to me to take a different decision, and I have, before reaching my final determination, most fully pondered over them. But my mind is made up. Moreover, further delay cannot but be most injurious to the peoples whom I have tried to serve as Prince of Wales and as King, and whose future happiness and prosperity are the constant wish of my heart." I take my leave of them, in the confident hope that the course which I have thought it right to follow is that which is best for the stability of the throne and empire and the happiness of my people. I am deeply sensible of the consideration which they have always extended to me, both before and after my accession to the throne, and which I know they will extend in full measure to my successor. I am most anxious that there should be no delay of any kind in giving effect to the instrument which I have executed, 
and that all necessary steps should be taken immediately to secure that my lawful successor, my brother, His Royal Highness the Duke of York, should ascend to the throne. Edward R.I. THE PRIME MINISTER I beg to move that His Majesty's most gracious message be now considered. No more grave message has ever been received by Parliament, and no more difficult, I may almost say repugnant, task has ever been imposed upon a Prime Minister. I would ask the House, which I know will not be without sympathy for me in my position to-day, to remember that in this last week I have had but little time in which to compose a speech for delivery to-day. So I must tell what I have to tell, truthfully, sincerely, and plainly, with no attempt to dress up or to adorn. I shall have little or nothing to say in the way of comment or criticism, or of praise or of blame. I think my best course to-day, and the one that the House would desire, is to tell them, so far as I can, what has passed between His Majesty and myself, and what led up to the present situation. I should like to say at the start that His Majesty, as Prince of Wales, has honoured me for many years with a friendship which I value, and I know that he would agree with me in saying to you that it was not only a friendship, but, between man and man, a friendship of affection. I would like to tell the House that, when we said good-bye on Tuesday night at Fort Belvedere, we both knew and felt and said to each other that that friendship, so far from being impaired by the discussions of this last week, bound us more closely together than ever, and would last for life. Now, sir, the House will want to know how it was that I had my first interview with His Majesty. I may say that His Majesty has been most generous in allowing me to tell the House the pertinent parts of the discussions which took place between us. As the House is aware, I had been ordered in August and September a complete rest, which, owing to the kindness of my staff and the consideration of all my colleagues, I had been able to enjoy to the full. And when October came, although I had been ordered to take a rest in that month, I felt that I could not, in fairness to my work, take a further holiday, and I came, as it were, on half-time before the middle of October, and for the first time since the beginning of August was in a position to look into things. There were two things that disquieted me at that moment. There was, coming to my office, a vast volume of correspondence, mainly at that time from British subjects and American citizens of British origin, in the United States of America, from some of the Dominions, and from this country, all expressing perturbation and uneasiness at what was then appearing in the American press. I was aware also that there was in the near future a divorce case coming on, as a result of which I realised that possibly a difficult situation might arise later, and I felt that it was essential that someone should see His Majesty and warn him of the difficult situation that might arise later, if occasion were given for a continuation of this kind of gossip and of criticism, and of the danger that might come if that gossip and that criticism spread from the other side of the Atlantic to this country. I felt that in the circumstances there was only one man who could speak to him and talk the matter over with him, 
and that man was the Prime Minister. I felt doubly bound to do it by my duty, as I conceived it, to the country, and my duty to him not only as a counsellor, but as a friend. I consulted, I am ashamed to say, and, and they have forgiven me, none of my colleagues. I happened to be staying in the neighbourhood of Fort Belvedere about the middle of October, and I ascertained that His Majesty was leaving his house on Sunday the 18th of October to entertain a small shooting party at Sandringham, and that he was leaving on the Sunday afternoon. I telephoned from my friend's house on the Sunday morning, and found that he had left earlier than was expected. In those circumstances I communicated with him through his secretary, and stated that I desired to see him. This is the first and only occasion on which I was the one who asked for an interview. That I desired to see him, that the matter was urgent. I told him what it was. I explained my willingness to come to Sandringham on Tuesday the 20th, but I said that I thought it wiser, if His Majesty thought fit, to see me at Fort Belvedere, for I was anxious that no one at that time should know of my visit, and that at any rate our first talk should be in complete privacy. The reply came from His Majesty that he would motor back on Monday the 19th of October to Fort Belvedere, and he would see me on the Tuesday morning and on the Tuesday morning I saw him. Sir, I may say, before I proceed to the details of the conversation, that an adviser to the Crown can be of no possible service to his master, unless he tells him at all times the truth as he sees it, whether that truth be welcome or not. And let me say here, as I may say several times before I finish, that during those talks, when I look back, there is nothing I have not told His Majesty, of which I felt he ought to be aware. Nothing. His Majesty's attitude all through has been, let me put it this way, never has he shown any sign of offence, of being hurt at anything I have said to him. The whole of our discussions have been carried out, as I have said, with an increase, if possible, of that mutual respect and regard in which we stood. I told His Majesty that I had two great anxieties. One, the effect of a continuance of the kind of criticism that at that time was proceeding in the American press, the effect that it would have in the Dominions, and particularly in Canada, where it was widespread, the effect it would have in this country. That was the first anxiety. And then I reminded him of what I had often told him and his brothers in years past— the British monarchy is a unique institution. The crown in this country, through the centuries, has been deprived of many of its prerogatives, but today, while that is true, it stands for far more than it ever has done in its history. The importance of its integrity is, beyond all question, far greater than it has ever been, being, as it is, not only the last link of empire that is left— but the guarantee in this country, so long as it exists in that integrity, against many evils that have affected and afflicted other countries. There is no man in this country, to whatever party he may belong, who would not subscribe to that. But while this feeling largely depends on the respect that has grown up in the last three generations for the monarchy, 
It might not take so long, in the face of the kind of criticisms to which it was being exposed, to lose that power far more rapidly than it was built up, and once lost, I doubt if anything could restore it. That was the basis of my talk on that aspect, and I expressed my anxiety and desire that such criticism should not have cause to go on. I said that, in my view, no popularity in the long run would weigh against the effect of such criticism. I told His Majesty that I, for one, had looked forward to his reign as being a, a great reign in a new age. He has so many of the qualities necessary, and that I hoped we should be able to see our hopes realised. I told him that I had come. Naturally, I was his Prime Minister— but I wanted to talk it over with him as a friend, to see if I could help him in this matter. Perhaps I am saying what I should not say here. I have not asked him whether I might say this, but I will say it, because I do not think he would mind, and I think it illustrates the basis on which our talks proceeded. He said to me, not once, but many times during those many hours we have had together, and especially towards the end, "'You and I must settle this matter together. "'I will not have anyone interfering.' "'I then pointed out the danger of the divorce proceedings, "'that if a verdict was given in that case "'that left the matter in suspense for some time, "'that period of suspense might be dangerous, "'because then everyone would be talking, "'and when once the press began, "'as it must begin sometime in this country, "'a most difficult situation would arise for me.' for him, and there might well be a danger which both he and I had seen all through this. I shall come to that later. And it was one of the reasons why he wanted to take this action quickly. That is, that there might be sides taken and factions grow up in this country in a matter where no faction ought ever to exist. It was on that aspect of the question that we talked for an hour and I went away glad that the ice had been broken, because I knew that it had to be broken. For some little time we had no further meetings. I begged His Majesty to consider all that I had said. I said that I pressed him for no kind of answer, but would he consider everything I had said. The next time I saw him was on Monday the 16th of November. That was at Buckingham Palace. By that date... The decree Nisi had been pronounced in the divorce case. His Majesty had sent for me on that occasion. I had meant to see him later in the week, but he had sent for me first. I felt it my duty to begin the conversation, and I spoke to him for a quarter of an hour or twenty minutes on the question of marriage. Again, we must remember that the Cabinet had not been in this at all. I had reported to about four of my senior colleagues— the conversation at Fort Belvedere. I saw the King on Monday the 16th of November, and I began by giving him my view of a possible marriage. I told him that I did not think that a particular marriage was one which would receive the approbation of the country. That marriage would have involved the lady becoming Queen. I did tell His Majesty once that I might be a remnant of the old Victorians, but that my worst enemy would not say of me that I did not know what the reaction of the English people would be to any particular cause of action, and I told him that so far as they went, I was certain that that would be impracticable. 
I cannot go further into the details, but that was the substance. I pointed out to him that the position of the king's wife was different from the position of the wife of any other citizen in the country. It was part of the price which the king has to pay. His wife becomes queen, the queen becomes queen of the country, and therefore in the choice of a queen the voice of the people must be heard. It is the truth expressed in those lines that may come to your mind. His will is not his own, for he himself is subject to his birth. He may not, as unvalued persons do, carve for himself, for on his choice depends the safety and the health of the whole state. Then his majesty said to me, I have his permission to state this, that he wanted to tell me something that he had long wanted to tell me. He said, I am going to marry Mrs. Simpson, and I am prepared to go. I said, Sir, that is most grievous news, and it is impossible for me to make any comment on it to-day. He told the Queen that night, he told the Duke of York and the Duke of Gloucester the next day, and the Duke of Kent, who was out of London either on the Wednesday or the Thursday, and for the rest of the week, so far as I know, he was considering that point. He sent for me again on Wednesday the 25th of November. In the meantime a suggestion had been made to me that a possible compromise might be arranged to avoid those two possibilities that had been seen, first in the distance, and then approaching nearer and nearer. The compromise was that the King should marry, that Parliament should pass an act enabling the lady to be the King's wife without the position of Queen. And when I saw His Majesty on the 25th of November, he asked me whether that proposition had been put to me, and I said yes. He asked me what I thought of it. I told him that I had not considered it. I said, I can give you no considered opinion. If he asked me my first reaction informally, my first reaction was that Parliament would never pass such a bill. But I said that if he desired it, I would examine it formally. He said he did so desire. Then I said, it will mean my putting that formally before the whole cabinet, and communicating with the prime ministers of all the dominions, and was that his wish? He told me that it was. I said that I would do it. On the 2nd of December the king asked me to go and see him. Again I had intended asking for an audience later that week, because such inquiries as I thought proper to make I had not completed. The inquiries had gone far enough to show that neither in the Dominions nor here would there be any prospect of such legislation being accepted. His Majesty asked me if I could answer his question. I gave him the reply that I was afraid it was impracticable for those reasons. I do want the House to realise this. His Majesty said that he was not surprised at that answer. He took my answer with no question, and he never recurred to it again. I want the House to realise, because if you can put yourself in His Majesty's place, and you know what His Majesty's feelings are, and you know how glad you would have been, had this been possible, that he behaved there as a great gentleman. He said no more about it. The matter was closed." I never heard another word about it from him. That decision was, of course, a formal decision, and that was the only formal decision of any kind taken by the Cabinet 
until I come to the history of yesterday. When we had finished that conversation, I pointed out that the possible alternatives had been narrowed, and that it really had brought him into the position that he would be placed in a grievous situation between two conflicting loyalties in his own heart, either complete abandonment of the project on which his heart was set, and remaining as king, or doing as he intimated to me that he was prepared to do, in the talk which I have reported, going, and later on contracting that marriage, if it were possible. During the last days, from that day until now, that has been the struggle in which His Majesty has been engaged. We had many talks, and always on the various aspects of this limited problem. The House must remember, it is difficult to realise, that His Majesty is not a boy, although he looks so young. We have all thought of him as our Prince. But he is a mature man, with wide and great experience of life and the world, and he always had before him three, nay, four things, which in these conversations at all hours he repeated again and again, that if he went he would go with dignity. He would not allow a situation to arise in which he could not do that. He wanted to go with as little disturbance of his ministers and his people as possible. He wished to go in circumstances that would make the succession of his brother as little difficult for his brother as possible. And I may say that any idea to him of what might be called a king's party was abhorrent. He stayed down at Fort Belvedere because he said that he was not coming to London while these things were in dispute, because of the cheering crowds. I honour and respect him for the way in which he behaved at that time. I have something here which I think will touch the house. It is a pencilled note, sent to me by His Majesty this morning, and I have his authority for reading it. It is just scribbled in pencil. Duke of York, he and the King have always been on the best of terms as brothers, and the King is confident that the Duke deserves and will receive the support of the whole Empire. I would say a word or two on the King's position. The King cannot speak for himself. The King has told us that he cannot carry, and does not see his way to carry, these almost intolerable burdens of kingship without a woman at his side, and we know that. This crisis, if I may use the word, has arisen now rather than later from that very frankness of His Majesty's character, which is one of his many attractions. It would have been perfectly possible for His Majesty not to have told me this at the date when he did, and not to have told me for some months to come. But he realised the damage that might be done in the interval by gossip, rumours, and talk, and he made that declaration to me when he did, on purpose to avoid what he felt might be dangerous, not only here but throughout the Empire, to the moral force of the Crown, which we are all determined to sustain. He told me his intentions, and he has never wavered from them. I want the House to understand that. He felt it his duty to take into his anxious consideration all the representations that his advisers might give him, and not until he had fully considered them did he make public his decision. There has been no kind of conflict in this matter. My efforts during these last days have been directed, as have the efforts of those most closely round him, in trying to help him to make the choice which he has not made, 
and we have failed. The king has made his decision to take this moment to send this gracious message because of his confident hope that by that he will preserve the unity of this country and of the whole empire, and avoid those factious differences which might so easily have arisen. It is impossible, unfortunately, to avoid talking to some extent to-day about oneself. These last days have been days of great strain, but it was a great comfort to me, and I hope it will be to the house, when I was assured before I left him on Tuesday night, by that intimate circle that was with him at the fort that evening, that I had left nothing undone that I could have done, to move him from the decision at which he had arrived, and which he has communicated to us. While there is not a soul among us who will not regret this from the bottom of his heart, there is not a soul here to-day that wants to judge. We are not judges. He has announced his decision. He has told us what he wants us to do, and I think we must close our ranks and do it. At a later stage this evening I shall ask leave to bring in the necessary bill, so that it may be read the first time, printed, and made available to members. It will be available in the vote office as soon as the House has ordered the bill to be printed. The House will meet to-morrow at the usual time, eleven o'clock, when we shall take the second reading, and the remaining stages of the bill. It is very important that it should be passed into law to-morrow and I shall put on the order-paper to-morrow a motion to take private members' time, and to suspend the four o'clock rule. I have only two other things to say. The House will forgive me for saying now something which I should have said a few minutes ago. I have told them of the circumstances under which I am speaking, and they have been very generous and sympathetic. Yesterday morning, when the cabinet received the king's final and definite answer officially, they passed a minute, and in accordance with it I sent a message to his majesty, which he has been good enough to permit me to read to the house with his reply. Mr. Baldwin, with his humble duty to the king. This morning Mr. Baldwin reported to the cabinet his interview with your majesty yesterday and informed his colleagues that your majesty then communicated to him informally your firm and definite intention to renounce the throne. The cabinet received this statement of your majesty's intention with profound regret, and wished Mr. Baldwin to convey to your majesty immediately the unanimous feeling of your majesty's servants. Ministers are reluctant to believe that your majesty's resolve is irrevocable and still venture to hope that before your majesty pronounces any formal decision, your majesty may be pleased to reconsider an intention which must so deeply distress and so vitally affect all your majesty's subjects. Mr. Baldwin is at once communicating with the Dominion Prime Ministers for the purpose of letting them know that your majesty has now made to him the informal intimation of your majesty's intention. His Majesty's reply was received last night. The King has received the Prime Minister's letter of the 9th of December, 1936, informing him of the views of the Cabinet. His Majesty has given the matter his further consideration, but regrets that he is unable to alter his decision. My last words on that subject are that I am convinced that where I have failed, no one could have succeeded.' 
His mind was made up, and those who know His Majesty best will know what that means. This house today is a theatre which is being watched by the whole world. Let us conduct ourselves with that dignity which His Majesty is showing in this hour of his trial. Whatever our regret at the contents of the message, let us fulfil his wish. Do what he asks, and do it with speed. Let no word be spoken to-day, that the utterer of that word may regret in days to come. Let no word be spoken that causes pain to any soul. And let us not forget to-day the revered and beloved figure of Queen Mary. What all this time has meant to her, and think of her when we have to speak, if speak we must, during this debate. We have, after all, as well becomes the guardian of democracy in this little island, to see that we do our work to maintain the integrity of that democracy, and of the monarchy, which, as I said at the beginning of my speech, is now the sole link of our whole empire, and the guardian of our freedom. Let us look forward, and remember our country, and the trust reposed by our country in this, the House of Commons, and let us rally behind the new king. Yeah, 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 yeah. Stand behind him, and help him. And let us hope that whatever the country may have suffered by what we are passing through, it may soon be repaired, and that we may take what steps we can in trying to make this country a better country, for all the people in it. End of speech.